You're listening to the Christian Humanist Radio Network, christianhumanist.org. This is the Christian Humanist Podcast, a weekly discussion of theology, philosophy, literature, art, and other things that human beings do well. And now your hosts, David Grubbs, Nathan Gilmore, and Michael Fong. So the same Welcome to episode 216 of the Christian Humanist Podcast. I'm your host for today. My name is Michael Farmer. I'm an assistant professor of English at Crown College in St. Bonifacius, Minnesota. Joining me today is Nathan Gilmore, who is an associate professor of English at Franklin Emanuel uh, College in Franklin Springs, Georgia. Nathan, am I ever going to get the name of your school in town right? I, I think it's still possible. I'm an optimist. <laughs> eight, eight years we've been doing this, and I, can't, I still can't remember where you teach. And I've been at the same college all eight of those years. Uh, also joining us is David Grubbs, who's an assistant professor of English at Houston Baptist University in Houston, Texas. David? Hi. I got yours right. Hard to mess that one up, though. Well, I mean, it's in the name. <laughs> what else is new on the network? Uh, we recently had a sectarian review episode. I was a guest on it called uh, Dante at War. Really a pretty interesting conversation about uh, different contexts where conversations about literature and ideas and such can happen Uh, a lot of fun to record you should check it out the christian feminist podcast just put an episode on the anime and scarlett johansson movie ghost in the shell Mm -hmm. and and which i have not listened to yet well at which point some of our listeners decided that now we're cool now well they decided that the cfp is cooler than us (laughs) yeah yeah i don't know what we're gonna do man we went with D D, and it didn't I mean, <laughs> we should just do a whole semester of episodes on Scarlett Johansson movies. I don't know about that. Could we do that? Are you guys into that? I could do that. <laughs> I'm seeing a string of point ones. <laughs> <laughs> just me talking about Scarlett Johansson for an entire semester. Oh, man. <laughs> How fun would that be? <sighs> well... Today we're talking about Robin Hood, Mm. and in particular we're talking about three film versions of Robin Hood. The Errol Flynn movie Adventures of Robin Hood, the Disney Robin Hood from 1973, and the Kevin Costner vehicle uh, Robin Hood Prince of Thieves from 1991. There are many other film versions of Robin Hood, uh, none of which I required people to watch, but... Uh, if you guys want to talk about Robin Hood Men in Tights or the dire-looking Russell Crowe Robin Hood from 2010, <laughs> uh, feel free to do so along the way. But the three I mentioned are the three that I uh, that we're going to mostly talk about. But before we get there, David, you have probably been waiting eight years to tell us about the legend of Robin Hood. So do that and do it relatively quickly because we have a lot of questions. Where does that legend come from and what cultural manifestations of it do we get before the earliest film? Oof. All right. So it's English. Uh, that that's established just from the content. the uh, The stories of Robin Hood are popular legends, which uh, show up textually as ballads. 
the earliest Robin Hood ballads that we've got are uh, 1400s when they're being written down. Um, some in the 1500s too. But the content of the ballads themselves uh, is such that it seems it seems to give evidence that these are that these are significantly older stories, right? They're uh, they're descriptions of a time in England, a cultural setting in England that uh, is not current in the 15th, 16th century. So, uh, so so you're talking about almost um, almost early modern um, texts that are reflecting back on this older stuff. They're in the form of ballads. Uh, the ballad is uh, a popular, uh, popular narrative verse form, usually narrative. It could be lyrical, but usually they're stories. Um, so this is not this is not high class stuff. It's popular stuff. It's of the people. So who wrote these things? Who knows? Uh, it's it's uh, one of the sources that I was reading on this, which is uh, Outlaws of Medieval Legend by. Morris Keane, um, a University of Toronto book from, I think, the 60s. Man, medievalists have way more fun books than the rest of us. That is that is a true point. Uh, it, it, anyway, it, in, in this particular book, it, it, it makes the point that ballads have a very kind of flexible uh, verse form. There's a lot of repetition of, of, of lines. And it's it seems almost designed for expansion and improvisation, so that an individual minstrel uh, could could make it longer or shorter, could wing it, um, could wed multiple ballads together in order to make some kind of giant uber Voltron ballad, um, and 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 that it's flexible that way. My understanding is very large anthropomorphic chickens were the minstrels. Is that is that accurate? Or <laughs> Yeah, that's exactly the way it was. <laughs> they all sound like Roger Miller. Yeah. Um, <laughs> giant anthropomorphic um, chickens. Uh, no, um, that's not not entirely not entirely accurate. Uh, but they are definitely men of the people, the way folk music functions and sort of sort of country music functions in the Disney Robin Hood is sort of letting you know the class of people that these stories are coming from. Uh, they are outlaw stories. There are actually lots of outlaw ballads um, in late medieval England uh, going on into the early modern era. Um, the Tale of Gamelin, um, uh, uh, Folk Fitzwarren, um, there are others. Um, there, there are outlaw ballads about William Wallace. So, you know, there's another movie connection for you. We're not watching that one, though. Thank God. No, we're not. We're not. We're not watching that. Uh, so uh, the ballads are, are episodic. Uh, there's not. There's not a whole lot of plot arc in them. It's more. Here's yet another adventure of Robin Hood. Robin Hood encounters this guy. Robin Hood encounters this situation. The earliest, uh, generally reckoned, the earliest one is the Jest of Robin Hood. Um, G E S T E of Robin Hood, uh, just an old French word that means the tale of, basically, which is one of those kind of Voltron ballads. Uh, it, it, it seems to pretty clearly be pieced together from multiple traditional ballads into a kind of larger, more overarching story. And it actually has a lot of the elements um, that are going to end up showing up later in this conversation. Um, 
it becomes more popular in later in early modern England and then going on into uh, the 18th and 19th centuries. Robin Hood continues to be kind of popular. Um, Robin Hood is referenced in some of the um, some of the Middle English authors that we know of. Um, I want to say William William Langland mentions him in Pierce Plowman, if I remember mm-hmm. correctly. Um, uh, he, he kind of has a cameo in Ivanhoe. Um, really? Yeah. So uh, there's uh, there's also the uh, the book Black Arrow by Robert Louis Stevenson, which is not it's not a Robin Hood story, but it's a Robin Hood style story. It ends up becoming um, kind of culturally influential and ubiquitous. So guys like um, uh, uh, Howard Pyle, who also wrote a King Arthur book, he he did a Robin Hood book as well, if I remember correctly. So. Yeah, he's he's just one of those big cultural figures that stays big. Nathan, um, anything you want to add to that? Uh, not particularly. I mean, I think that's pretty good cultural history of it. I want to mention it's a I think a 14th century combination like closet drama slash uh, chamber music by the composer Adam Lahall. Do you, do you the game of Robin Hood and Maid Marian? Have you heard this, David? Mm-mm. So it's got interstitial music, but it's mostly a play. And the the the, uh, the copy of it I have in the left channel they speak the French, and in the right channel they speak English. And really, the only thing I remember about it is Maid Marian announces that she has diarrhea, and everybody else in the play goes, "Ah!" Oh! <laughs> huh. So I don't remember that part from the from the movies. Well, there's well, there's that. <laughs> yeah, but it's earthy in that wonderful medieval way, isn't it? That's that's really funny. Uh, Nathan, Robin Hood is obviously uh, proven to be an incredibly durable and long-lasting cultural myth. I think David made that clear. Why is that? What is it, what is it? This legend does for us, and and does it morph uh, in in various contexts. Yeah, part of what makes Robin Hood such a durable character is that he is so malleable. I mean, if you think about uh, a sort of classic medieval late Platonist view of the universe, uh, there is always the possibility uh, within a monarchical system or any kind of hierarchical system that the figures who take on power within that system are themselves corrupt. Uh, it's a it's a danger that Plato himself was talking about. It's something that uh, is inherent in that structure, and so within that system, uh, there arises a place for a character whose loyalty is neither to the visible structure nor to the particular king, uh, but to the disembodied principles. Uh, and if you think about it, you know it makes this character especially suited to uh, a a Christian culture like medieval England because you have predecessors to that like the the apostles, like the various martyrs who oppose temporal powers and, uh, you know, secular powers in the name of Christ. Uh, It's not too hard to, you know, take a lateral step from that and say, you know, can we imagine a character who opposes a, a king or a phony king, as the case may be, in the name of the true king, whether that be Richard or whether that be a more abstract principle like justice or freedom or so on and so forth. So within that moral universe, 
uh, a character like Robin Hood is not only intelligible but also very compelling precisely because he is reaching to something that's beyond the visible. When you move into the uh, Hollywood era, which we're talking about today to a large extent, you have a very different kind of worldview. There's a, a much more pronounced suspicion of hierarchies, uh, especially of monarchical hierarchies. But, I mean, as the sort of set-piece speeches in the uh, Errol Flynn and Kevin Costner versions will attest, uh, you can have Robin Hood talk in favor of big, abstract, French Revolution kind of ideas like freedom and brotherhood and liberty and goodness and so on and so forth. Uh, and in that context, uh, you don't have as strong a sense that... Uh, you know, there, there is a rightful way to be hierarchical, but Richard in those really just kind of becomes a placeholder. I mean, you know, in neither one of the films, uh, in really any of the three, is he all that prominent a character? He really just kind of steps in at the end to represent abstractly what's been lost. Uh, so, right. you know, the, the really fascinating, you know, structural thing about Robin Hood, and I honestly didn't know I was going to go structuralist with this when I first saw it, but it seems that's where I'm headed, <laughs> uh, is that he is a figure who always reaches above what is visible towards what is invisible, and that urge to transcend, uh, especially in cases of corruption, but even in cases where the corruption isn't as obvious, uh, is a powerful one, both for the democratic soul and for the monarchical soul. Now, as far as, you know, what the changes, what changes have come, you know, I've kind of already mentioned it, uh, and we're going to talk about some of the characters other than Robin Hood himself who change uh, as film history rolls on. But, you know, if you think about uh, the shift from Errol Flynn to Kevin Costner as sort of our, our paradigm here, um, Kevin Costner's Robin Hood is a Robin Hood who comes into being after the Star Wars movies and after Tim Burton's Batman. Uh, mm. So, you know, if you've got a sort of vigilante, anti-hero Robin Hood, mm -hmm. well, you got to have his parents die violently. His parents <laughs> have to be wealthy. And he has to be, you know, plagued by some kind of previous persona in which he didn't live up to what his responsibility was. You've got all of those I had things. not considered that. Yeah, you've got all of those things going on in the Costner Robin Hood and then the the Star Wars tie-in you know in addition to the fact that Robin Hood's merry merry men live in a an Ewok village in uh Kevin <laughs> Costner's version um yep you know you've got this idea that he has to be tutored somehow by an alien other uh and you know in this case it happens to be a magical African rather than Yoda but still you have this sense that Robin Hood becomes the who he is man. what now the painted man yes the <laughs> Morgan Freeman, yeah. Um, but, I mean, you get a sense that he really comes into his own, both through his origin story, you know, he learns his English ninja skills in the Crusades, but also <laughs> under the tutelage of the alien other, namely Morgan Freeman's character, Azim. So, you know, those are some of the, the, the big changes that this character undergoes. Uh, there's also far more of a sense of sort of moral change in the later versions of it. Um, or uh, the later version of it that we're going to talk about today. Uh, you know, there's a far more developed sense that 
Robin Hood before he left for the Crusades was the sort of, you know, young, spoiled prince from Beauty and the Beast. Mm-hmm. Uh, but instead of being turned into a buffalo, he gets sent up to Jerusalem. Uh, and so when he comes back, you know, once again, this this sort of Batman Robin Hood uh, uh-huh. has a far deeper sense of responsibility, a far deeper sense of kinship with the poor, and generally speaking, you know, enough of a capacity to welcome in even a traitor half-brother that we'll talk about a little bit later. Uh, David, I've, I've been focusing largely on, you know, the, the changes within the three films that we talked about, and really two of them I focused on. Mm-hmm. What else would you add to that? The, well, the emphasis on Saxon Norman stuff in... Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. In the, the Errol Flynn Robin Hood, uh, which is actually something that he gets from Ivanhoe. I didn't know that. That's interesting. Um, I was surprised. I'd never seen the Errol Flynn before, and I was really surprised how much they play up the Saxon Norman stuff. Oh yeah, yeah. the 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 ethnicity question is is enormous um, in in that particular version, and sometimes Norman. (laughs) Um, The uh, the other thing is what what is his status before he is Robin Hood uh, in both Robin Hood. Prince of Thieves and in The Adventures of Robin Hood, he is Robin of Loxley, a a Saxon knight. Um, mm-hmm. In Errol Flynn, he is a Saxon knight who is at home while while King Richard is abroad. All right. In Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves, he is a he's a knight who actually went on the Crusades and has come back. Um, mm-hmm. So so there's that kind of difference in terms of. Um, how he's engaged with with King Richard and 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 those goings on. The Disney Robin Hood is just Robin Hood from the beginning. The yeah. <laughs> he has no backstory. He's just always been Robin Hood. Um, he's just always been awesome Robin Hood. Right, and in that sense, I mean, it's it's closer in that way to the medieval ballads. I mean, you, yes, the the ballad Robin Hood doesn't need a backstory. Exactly. Exactly. Can we, can we all just agree? That the Disney one is the best out of these three. I enjoy it the most, yeah. But by a country mile. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I like the Errol Flynn one a lot, but... Oh, it drags so much. Well, it... That, that movie yeah. is so long. <laughs> it is, but I still love it. But, but... It's, it's good. Like it has some really great set pieces. Like when he comes into yeah. Prince John's castle with the, with the deer. Yes. And, and beats people up with, like like when there's action in that movie it's excellent but uh, man there are some long boring stretches in the Errol Flynn <laughs> oh and, the, and the, the last sort of duel between Guy of Gisborne and Robin Hood in that one is just phenomenal they are going yeah, at it that's true just hammering songs and it's and it's not like these days in action films where it's like um, quick cuts it's long cuts these guys are fighting hard for a long time it's mm-hmm. actually really really cool um, but last night was probably like maybe like the tenth or twelfth time I've watched it. So <laughs> anyway, there is a uh, silent uh, Robin Hood film, uh, Tyrone Power. Uh, oh my gosh! Uh, but that comes before um, b- before the uh, the Adventures of Robin Hood with Errol Flynn, and it's very. Um, 
it, it the the Errol Flynn one is is pretty clearly pulling on uh, pulling on that as well. Um, it's it's just absolutely lavish. And if you think the Errol Flynn one drags Michael, oh my word, uh, <laughs> the the silent one is just it's just enormous it's it's halfway before it's halfway through the film before robin hood is robin hood oh my gosh yes oh man because it actually shows them leaving on the crusades right and all right 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 there's like a tournament and then they go on the crusades and then there's there's stuff and then he comes back and he's held a prisoner and it's like halfway through the movie before he's even you know yeah so it's 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 pretty it's pretty cool um it's it's lavish just enormous set pieces enormous numbers of extras uh, and does Maid Marian get diarrhea in that version? Um, <laughs> if so, uh, it doesn't show up in the dubbing <laughs> or the subtitles. I, I like to think that's subtext in all of them. That's the subtext. <laughs> yeah, yeah I, I, I'm thinking of moments from the Costner film now differently. <laughs> yeah, most of the people in the Costner film look constipated. To be fair, <laughs> yeah. Um. Well, we've we've kind of already touched on the next question, so we can we can probably brush on it quickly here, David. But but tell me about Robin Hood himself uh, in these movies. How how malleable is his character? Well, we've already kind of been talking about how malleable Robin Hood is. In particular, whether or not he shows up as Robin Hood, whether or not he has a character arc that leads him to being Robin Hood, and what that character arc is, that ends up having a lot to do with. Uh, what themes are at work. Uh, obviously, Errol Flynn's is very much a kind of um, I am a man of the people, both um, both in, in terms of class. Even though he's a nobleman, he kind of associates himself with, with the lower classes. But also, there's a, there's a, a, a difference of ethnicity, of culture. Um, he identifies with the Saxons. Um, and so he's that, he's that kind of character. Uh, the not Tyrone Power, but Douglas Fairbanks Robin Hood um, absolutely has this long half movie uh, character arc in which he starts off as emphatically noble, emphatically aristocratic, and has to gradually become this working man's hero um, over the course of half the movie. There's something similar to that in in the Kevin Costner movie as well. Uh, he's Except that one is focusing much more on the idea of, of him as a damaged veteran. Mm-hmm. The yeah. the aristocracy element is mostly there as baggage. Um, he doesn't really seem to be pulling rank on anybody. He's not, you know, making you know he's he's not getting sniffy about the fact that he has to live in a hut in the woods. Right. Right. Um, there, there is the one tense moment where you know uh, little John asks him, "Have you come to join us?" And he says, "No, I've come to lead you." Yeah, yeah, that's 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 kind of the one point of uh, of uh, check your check your privilege, Robin of Loxley. <laughs> well, he he proves that he's allowed to lead them because he has balls of solid rock, I believe. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's the, which is established in an action scene. Um, yeah, so he, he what Robin Hood is 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 fairly flexible, and this goes back even to the ballads 
um, Robin Hood is kind of a uh, he's kind of a cipher in the ballads. He can do very uh, often very radically different things. He can be merciful. He can be merciful. He can be funny. He can be uh, courteous, and he can be brutal and vindictive. And because he's kind of a cipher in the way that often characters in medieval text are, um, it, it can be very difficult to get a to get a, a, a fix on. Okay, who is this dude? What's he about? Um, probably the only one that doesn't really have a uh, have a character arc is the Disney one. He's pretty much the same awesome dude he is at the end of the movie as he was at the beginning, except that he's one. <laughs> I, I think they do a really interesting thing with the nobility in that movie, which mm-hmm. is to say all the bad guys are carnivores. Mm. Most of the good guys, outside of the Merry Men, are herbivores. Mm-hmm. Robin Hood and Little John, and Friar Tuck for that matter, mm-hmm. are all carnivores who work on behalf of the herbivores. Oh, that's interesting. <laughs> it's pro- and I cannot pro- remember Zootopia. the episode... <laughs> I can't remember the episode where this happened, but the the loudest I've ever made you laugh, David, yes. is in an episode where I suggested that Maid Marian is constantly <laughs> holding back from eating Lady Cluck. <laughs> I don't remember when we talked about that, but I've never been prouder of anything I said because I thought you were going to fall out of your chair. Yeah, no, that was that was an excellent moment. Um, which means I can't watch the movie the same way anymore, <laughs> and my kids watch it like on loop. It's I'm I am so much in the middle of the of Disney's Robin Hood, um, which makes like Robin Hood showing up with the rabbit family, like that's a tense scene then, right? <laughs> Robin Hood's like restraint, restraint, show mercy, don't eat them. Anyway, but I don't I don't know if the <laughs> if the filmmakers did that on purpose, but I do think it says something that he's a carnivore who who works on behalf of all these herbivores. Mm-hmm. Actually, I do know something. Uh, I wish I could remember where I read it. Um, probably in some place that's not at all reputable. Anyway, uh, apparently uh, Disney had been considering doing a film version of the Renard the Fox stories. Yeah, right, right. From from France, uh, but the content of those stories just seemed less and less kind of adaptable to a Disney movie. Uh, but they have, but they already had these kind of sketches for for the kind of um, anthropomorphic uh, animal characters, uh, and they had all of these, you know, all of these animations they wanted to reuse from Jungle Book, so they just went with Robin Hood, you know, as a fox. And God bless them. Yeah, oh, exactly. I mean, like I, I go through the whole thing, and I'm looking at all the recycled animations, and I'm not even caring. Because yeah, okay, yeah, they recycled some animations from Aristocats. You know what? Aristocrats Aristocats not anywhere near the movie that Robin Hood is. And and I mean who's gonna complain about bringing Phil Harris into another Exactly. It's 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 (laughs) upcycled, right? They upcycled it into Robin Hood. Let's talk about his rivals. (laughs) The three films we watched all use a combination of three villains. Prince John, Guy of Gisborne. I refuse to call him Guy of Gisborne. <laughs> and uh, the Sheriff of Nottingham. Uh, Nathan, why is that trio important? And in what various ways can we think about its members? I, if you say Guy of Gisborne with enough gravel, then uh, you know I, I think that's uh, one of the few things you can say in praise of uh, Costner's Robin Hood. Um, <laughs> these three characters, I mean, appear, as you say, in different combinations. 
in the films. Uh, Errol Flynn has all three of them. Uh, Prince John and Guy Gisborne definitely have more prominent roles than the Sheriff of Nottingham. Uh, Robin, uh, Disney's Robin Hood uh, cuts out Guy of Gisborne entirely, as far as I can tell, unless he's hiding mm-hmm. somewhere and I missed him. Uh, <laughs> you may, you, you could think of him as being Sir Hiss. I tried to do that, but I, I couldn't make, I couldn't map him onto Sir Hiss. Yeah, yeah, it doesn't work except that there's three villains in the Disney one. Right. Yeah, I guess that's true. I guess that's true. And then uh, what, what, what fascinated me is, uh, you know, revisiting Costner's Robin Hood after, gosh, must be twenty years at this point. Um. I came to realize that not only does Prince John never appear, but no one ever mentions Prince John in that movie. Yep. Uh, so, you know, the, the plot line actually shifts so that the sheriff is the primary villain, and when you've got Alan Rickman, why wouldn't he be? Um, and, you know, his plot doesn't involve usurping one king with another king, but rather marrying into the royal family and sort of staging a coup against the royal family by means of sorcery and so on and so forth. So once again, I mean, just like Robin Hood himself, these characters are massively flexible. I mean, in the Errol Flynn version, Guy of Gisborne uh, really is the counterpart to Robin Hood, the same way that John is the counterpart to Richard. Uh, Their proxy rivalry over Marion, as well as their violent struggle that ends in the death of one of them, uh, really is the place where the rivalry between John and Richard plays out. You know, there there really isn't a strong, you know, uh, grand battle scene between, you know, two large armies. It's, you know, when Robin Hood kills Guy of Gisborne, that's pretty much when the succession struggle ends. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, in the Disney version, you know, I mean, uh, uh, Prince John and, and, and the Sheriff of Nottingham, you know, are very much sort of comic buffoon villains. Uh, Prince John, sort of the the effete weakling <laughs> villain. Uh, and Sheriff of Nottingham, you know, the sort of, you know, uh, I guess the big bruiser hillbilly villain uh, who's sort of a... He's, he's like a he's like an overweight southern sheriff. Yeah, he really is. Yeah. He really is. He's, he's, he's Roscoe Coltrane. Except... Played magnificently by Pat Buttram, mm-hmm. <laughs> which if Alan Rickman had never played the part, like I think he would have to say Pat, uh, Pat Buttram is the definitive of sheriff. Oh of yeah, because in, in the Errol Flynn, and, I, and you know I hadn't seen it for years, uh, <laughs> I had forgotten just how little the sheriff has a role in it. I yep. mean, really, he suggests the trap for Robin Hood, and other than that, he laughs at the jokes of the other two villains. And that's one thing, just just as an aside, I had forgotten after all these years just how many minutes of Errol Flynn's Robin Hood were taken up with, ha, 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 ha. I just, <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, oh, come on, guys, it's not that funny. Let's drop it. Yeah. Let's drop it. Yeah. <laughs> but anyway. Um, uh-huh. <clears throat> so let me talk about, you know, the three permutations real quick, and then I'll kind of lateral to David to to take it from there. You know, in Errol Flynn's, like I said, there's really a parallel structure between the main protagonist and the main antagonist. Uh, Some are for the people and some are for themselves. Uh, In the Disney version, like I said, uh, your villains are sort of comic stereotypes. Uh, The mustache-swirling weakling and the country sheriff. Uh, And then in, you know... 
I almost said Robin Hood men in tights, which we haven't we've, <laughs> we've managed not to mention yet, and I think we'll continue. In uh, Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves, uh, really Guy of Gisborne becomes the incompetent gangster sidekick. Yeah, and the sheriff of Nottingham uh, really, in so many ways, just takes up all of the oxygen in every scene that he's in. Um, so, do, do you know Rickman would only agree to do that movie if they gave him complete creative control? <laughs> so, like, he just did whatever he wanted. Most famously, is that when true? He, when he give, oh yeah, when he when he yells the long list of punishments. And ending with and cancel Christmas and cancel Christmas was not in the script. Rickman Rickman added that. God bless him for That's it. That's so wonderful. That really is. That that movie is so dire that like anything you can do to get some fun in there. Yes. Mm-hmm. And and Rickman does add most of the fun. And honestly, I mean, he he reminds me, Michael, and you can you you guys can tell me what you think of this. He reminds me of Gene Hackman as Lex Luthor. Because in a Superman movie that is so little fun as as Christopher Reeves' Superman is, <laughs> I mean, Gene Hackman is just having so much fun being Lex Luthor that it almost makes it worth revisiting. Mm. Or for that matter, the Joker in Tim Burton's Batman. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, absolutely. So, David, I mean, what else is there to add about these three characters other than they can become whatever you want to make them? <laughs> well, uh... So, Roots, the Sheriff of Nottingham is the oldest Robin Hood villain. Uh, he actually shows up in the jest of Robin Hood, uh, the generally considered oldest version that we've got. Sheriff of Nottingham is in there as the sort of arch antagonist. Uh, he shows up almost immediately when... Little John, who starts off as Robin Hood's sidekick, there's no kind of introduction scene in that oldest source. That's that's from another <laughs> that's from another ballad. Uh, that whole Robin Hood and Little John meeting each other thing. In that very introductory scene, Little John asks Robin Hood, "Okay, how do we act? Who do we rob?" And Robin Hood says, "Well, you don't rob farmers, and you don't rob fa- uh, yeomen, and if." The knight, if there are knights who are acting, you know, as they ought to, don't rob them. But uh, monks, totally fair game. <laughs> Bishops, fair game. But watch out for the sheriff of Nottingham. So he, he's he's the oldest one. The next oldest is a uh, Guy or Guy of Gisborne. Uh, he actually shows up in a ballad as as uh, almost. Uh, a foil for Robin Hood. He's a he's essentially an assassin who's been hired to take Robin Hood out, and they're both just sort of assassins creating each other, basically. Hmm. Um, and eventually, Robin Hood kills him and like assumes his place. It's 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 one of the dark ones, and it's rad. And that actually ends up continuing to be what's true of of guy of. of uh, Guy of Gisborne is that he he remains a foil kind of character through most of the iterations, so that as Robin changes, he also changes. So that in the Errol Flynn version, uh, which is pulling off of the Douglas Fairbanks version, not Tyrone Power, I screwed that up. <laughs> uh, Guy of Gisborne is no longer kind of a seamy underworld assassin character. He's now another knight, um, the way Robin Hood is. 
so that you get to see Robin Hood have this knighthood done rightly and then knighthood done wrongly trajectory. They're both rivals for the love of Maid Marian in those movies as well. So he's got that foil relationship there. Um, with the sheriff, it's basically outlaw versus law enforcement. Uh, and then Prince John uh, isn't even introduced into the, into the story until much later. Um, I want to say seven, it's 17th century before anybody makes any kind of um, Richard Lionheart, um, Prince John, that era as the context for the Robin Hood stories. The oldest Robin Hood ballads refer to it as being in the time of King Edward. So you've got, what, like, <clears throat> like three, three or four viable options? <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> right? So... Uh, the, the the putting it in in the Richard Lionheart Prince John's uh, uh, attempts to usurp um, seize power while his brother is abroad that that's actually a fairly late addition to the story but one that becomes dominant uh, largely because that's what shows up in Ivanhoe. Robin Hood would not, of course, be Robin Hood if he weren't surrounded by his band of merry men. Most of them go unnamed in the versions we watched, but three of them um, have typically emerged as separate characters. Little John, Friar Tuck, and Will Scarlet, and, and Will Scarlet really only appears in Flynn and Costner. What heavy lifting do the merry men in the Robin Hood legend do? They're in it from the very beginning. From the very beginning. Little John is there in the oldest version, as is Will Scarlet, though there it is spelled Scarlock, which is kind of radder. <laughs> uh, Friar Tuck shows up in a later ballad, but this this notion that Robin Hood is not a, a solo hero, that he's actually got uh, a band around him of colorful characters who are each kind of interesting protagonist in their own right is is there from the beginning and that lets the ballad writers uh, sort of take stories off in different directions so that you might leave Robin Hood for a while and follow Little John or follow Will or follow um, Much the Miller's Son uh, who is in Flynn's, uh, uh, the Errol Flynn version Much the Miller's Son is, is actually a, a very prominent uh, character in the, the Robin Hood ballads. He's kind of turned into Wolf, Little John's son in the Costner version. Yeah, he's yeah he he seems to be doing a lot of that same that same function of of the little guy that gets rescued early on, basically, who keeps showing up again. So, what the ballads are accomplishing by this is. They're, they're actually able to tell a lot of different kinds of stories with the same cast of characters than they would if they just had one central, uh, one central character uh, because they can tell a Friar Tuck-style story or a Little John-style story, and that'll be a different kind of story than would be Robin Hood. There's another interesting thing that happens at the beginning of The Just of Robin Hood, which is that Robin Hood, one, lays down a code of conduct for his men, and he also insists on not eating supper until a guest has been brought. And that's, that's uh, a plot point in, in that first Robin Hood, that earliest Robin Hood ballad we have. And both of those traits, first of setting up a code for his following, and then two of, of kind of in having this beginning of dinner ritual, 
both of these are parallel with stories of King Arthur, which are older than and precede uh, the Robin Hood stories. So that Robin Hood is kind of setting himself up as a kind of king of the forest. Uh, he's a, a sort of a lord of an alternate realm that has its own heroes and its own rules. And the Merry Men, in that case, are his Knights of the Round Table. Or if we, if we wanted to make the, the biblical reference, they're David's mighty men. Uh, that's, that's kind of the function of them. And, and so Robin Hood, as, as one who attracts followers, inspires followers, and is a leader of men, that's a, that's, it's an important part of the story that's assumed from the beginning, and some, which is why some of the movies want to make as part of the, pl- of, of the character arc, how is it that this Robin Hood character acquires these loyal fo- followers, and how does he become that leader of men that he's seen to be? Nathan, what would you toss in? Uh, once again, uh, and I know I've been kind of flogging this, and I'll continue to flog it, but uh, the flexibility of these characters is really impressive. I mean, when you mm-hmm. look at uh, Will's, uh, yeah, Will Scarlet, especially uh, in the Errol Flynn version, um, he's basically a very jolly guy who wears red. <laughs> I guess that's why he's Will Scarlet. Um, but then with Costner, uh, even if the execution isn't there, and I would say the execution isn't there, there's an attempt to give a sort of narrative complexity to Will Scarlet to where he is at the same time an ally in the struggle and he is a reminder of the previous sins of Robin of Loxley, hmm. uh, with whom Robin Hood must reconcile uh, in order to face the final challenge. Uh, now, I mean, you know, as, as Michael's already noted, I mean, uh, the the Costner version, I mean, is a movie that at the same time takes itself entirely too seriously and also can't be taken seriously because of, you know, some, some certain <laughs> very definite flaws. Uh, but I will acknowledge the attempt there to, you know, get, get, lend some complexity to one of these characters uh, in, in, in a way that, you know, parallels the complexity that Robin Hood himself gets. Mm-hmm. Um, Casting somebody other than Christian Slater probably would have been a good way to do that. That would have been a good first step. Yep, yep. I, uh, <laughs> now, the, the other thing about the Merry Men is that they are, you know, fairly straightforward uh, outlaw characters in the Errol Flynn version. Uh, they would probably find themselves a ready home in uh, Johnny Depp's Pirates of the Caribbean movies. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, they're pretty straightforward, roguish characters. Whereas in the Costner version, they are the the pe- the peasants and the sir and the yeoman and so on and so forth who have been driven out, and so they become a sort of uh, resistance army in a way that they don't really become in in the Arrow Flynn version. So uh, once again just the the flexibility of these characters is pretty impressive. Michael, what else would there be to add to that? Just that Friar Tuck is wonderful. <laughs> and, and other than the Sheriff of Nottingham is probably the one redeeming part of the of the Kevin Costner version. Mm-hmm. It's hard not to cheer when he pushes the Archbishop out the window and <laughs> tells him he has to pay the devil on his way to hell. <laughs> yeah. He's, he's pretty awesome. Um, 
the the aggressiveness of Friar Tuck is is actually one of the one of the features of his of his character, though. It is one of the flaws of the Disney Robin Hood. Um, while his character is cool, I love Friar Tuck and Disney's Robin Hood. Um, friars don't have churches. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> They're a mendicant order. They wander around. That's the point of his character is that he's rootless. Uh, just kind of translating him straight into country parson uh, doesn't doesn't work. Maybe maybe uh, the sheriff of Nottingham ate the actual parson. <laughs> That's a fair point. <laughs> Al- Alan Adale's juicy chicken brother. <laughs> <sighs> Old bushel britches. Yeah. Well, and, and, and the other great line from the Costner version from Friar Tuck is, uh, you know, when Azim, you know, refrains from drinking with him. Yes. You know, the line, That's fine. You talk, I'll drink. (laughs) (laughs) Excellent. Uh, Robin's love interest, Maid Marian, I believe, is not in the earliest versions of the legend. Uh, Nathan, was she added just to throw in some girl stuff, or is she interesting in her own right? She's actually a range of interesting characters in her own right. (laughs) Uh, So, you know, in in the Disney version, I mean, she is... um, You know, her main role really is to, you know, bring some of the characters together... Uh, she has a backstory with Robin Hood. Um, you know, she is not very active in the story necessarily, but she's certainly amusing when she's on screen. And, you know, once you've got the Michael Farmer reading in your head, uh, she's also interacting with the chicken and, you know, there's all that. <laughs> but <laughs> what's fascinating about the Errol Flynn version of, of Lady Marion is that she begins as a, a, Nor- a Norman lady uh, and she undergoes an educational experience, really. Uh, she has a notion when she first shows up that Robin Hood is simply a ruffian. He's someone who's a sort of class traitor, that he is ill-mannered, so on and so forth. And ultimately, because Robin Hood brings her into the camp and shows her the suffering of the people and demonstrates that there is a possibility for being an aristocrat that lies beyond what's possible with Guy of Gisborne. She becomes a genuinely different character and actually becomes one of the figures of resistance at the end of that film. On the other hand, Costner's Lady Marion uh, is already really a leader of the resistance when we first meet her. Uh, She is taking in people from the countryside, uh, giving them succor when you know, the, the oppression of the Sheriff of Nottingham has driven them out of their homes and so forth. Uh, and to a pretty real extent, she is the one who, along with others, educates Robin so that he can become the hero of the people. Uh, so, again, you know, if you think about uh, the Costner version's place in movie history, you know, this is a post-Christopher Reeve, Lois Lane, Lady Marion uh, she has her own life. She does need rescued on occasion, uh, but she is already doing good in the world before Robin Hood shows up. So I would say, uh, first of all, that you know, uh, when it comes to the uh, literary antecedents of Maid Marian, uh, I'd want to go to Grubbs for that. But within just the films that we're looking at, uh, the two live-action versions of Lady Marian 
each really stands as a fairly complex, dynamic character in her own right, but in very different directions. Uh, Michael, I mean, what, what do you think of when you think of Lady Marion? I think it's important that she is, at least in the versions we, we watched, accompanied by a lady-in-waiting. Yeah. Uh, who, in at least two of them, is kind of awesome in her own right, right? So we've, we've, we've talked about Lady Cluck, mm-hmm. who was wonderful. Um, but also in the Errol Flynn, uh, the Marion's, uh, lady in waiting, who I think his name is Beth, whatever, whatever her name is, is, <laughs> is, you know, she gets some laugh lines. She has a personality. She does, she does things. And, and, mm-hmm. and I think both Lady Cluck and Bess or whatever her name is, mm-hmm. owe a lot to the nurse from Romeo and Juliet. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I don't remember. Does Marion have a lady in waiting in the Costner film? I think she does. Oh Yeah. And in fact, uh, that that's part of the opening gag because she passes herself off as Marion when Robin first comes to the castle, mm-hmm. and that's when that's you know right. we discover that you know the real Lady Marion sometimes dresses as a ninja. We're not sure why. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Well, it, um, and 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 really in the in the Costner version, I think um, Little John's wife does a lot of the kind of lady cluck work. Yeah. Yeah. Though it's it's uh, it's Marion's lady in waiting in, in in the Kevin Costner one who takes the message herself and ends up getting knocked over the head mm-hmm. in that way. So she actually gets kind of her action hero moment. That's that's lady, that's true. That's Lady Cluckish. David, anything to add about Maid Marion? Well, Maid Marion, uh, you're right. She's a she's a later edition. Uh, she she's she's not in the oldest. Uh, in the oldest Robin Hood stuff, but a maid Marion is is in there in a certain sense in the form of Marion devotion. Uh, the jest of Robin Hood and some of the other Robin Hood ballads present Robin Hood as having this kind of uh, uh, strongly uh, this strong devotion for the Virgin Mary. He evokes her a lot um, at one point. Uh, someone attempts to to get his uh, uh, so someone makes a, a, an oath to him and swears by you know swears by God you know and you know s- s- and swears by various holy things and it isn't until he invokes the Virgin Mary that Robin Hood's like okay all right good that that one we'll go with that one um, <laughs> so that that element is interesting here um, I I don't know what effect that might have on Maid Marian, the literal figure later on. It's just that, you know, from the beginning, there's this um, this kind of uh, Robin, Ho- Robin Hood as, as devoted to um, uh, a, a, vin- a woman worthy of veneration is, is, is there as an element at the beginning. Though it's devo- it's uh, a religious thing earlier on. I think that's interesting. As far as I can tell, there is not a single episode of the Robin Hood legend that appears in all three of the films we watched. I could be wrong about that. Um, So I'm just going to ignore Costner and talk about my favorite (laughs) scene from the Flynn and the Disney versions, which is the archery contest. Uh, David, why do I love that episode so much? And why on earth did Costner leave it out? Uh, You love it so much because it's awesome. Uh, also it is one of the elements in 
those two versions that we're talking about, Flynn and uh, the Flynn version and the Disney version, that's actually in the very oldest Robin Hood romance. The archery, hmm. the archery contest is in the jest of Robin Hood. And in the jest of Robin Hood, it is the Sheriff of Nottingham's idea. <laughs> and it is, it is specifically, uh, even though all of the setup is not there, the Sheriff of Nottingham calls an archery contest and the reward is an arrow with a head with with an arrowhead of red gold there's none there's none like it in all of England and Robin Hood and his men come in disguise and they compete and Robin Hood wins and when he wins the sheriff starts in hot pursuit um, because it was a trap so you know this is this is one of the authentic bits uh, that we that we see, you know, kind of working all their way through the tradition. It's it's a lot of fun because it's a contest. It's a chance for Robin Hood to be kind of like obviously the best at something. Um, he's usually splitting arrows, right, in the scene. Um, in the in the original ballad, he's he's splitting. Um, uh, they were shooting at a at, at a stick. Right, a willow wand, and you know, winning involves splitting the willow wand, and uh, Robin Hood does that. Um, why would Costner leave it out? Because it actually shows a kind of peaceful, um, festive time in a relatively stable region, mm-hmm. whereas Costner's version is just so dang bleak. Right? <laughs> it would be like you know the road stopping for, you know, some kind of interval in which the man gets to show us that he's really, really good at basketball. (laughs) (laughs) You know, uh, and Costner's just not going to let up for that. There's, it is true that the other two versions have a fairly sunny view of the middle ages. I mean, I mean, obviously you have corrupt monarchy and there's a lot of, there's a lot of bad stuff going on, but like it, you know, it's, it's not a time that's, perpetually raining it's not the dark ages it's nothing like that it's it's you know well there there are cheerful things well they're showing a culture that it's actually functional um you know the sheriff of nottingham and costner's version is going to have a famine for the next you know several years because he's basically butchering the the agricultural class, right? I mean, you don't. <laughs> he's gonna he's gonna have to eat something eventually. <laughs> Besides the scenery, you mean? Besides the scenery, <laughs> and uh, you know uh, what you what's in the Robin Hood ballads and what's in uh, the Disney version, and you know, in the Flynn version, is that there's actually some time in which. Robin Hood. Robin Hood is an outlaw. Is an outlaw over the course of a significant amount of time. You know the cult. The society is relatively stable. The big things at issue are have to do with kind of power struggles at the top that aren't necessarily working their way all the way down to apocalypse now for everyone. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, and I mean the the presence of Prince John is also a factor because he yeah. is a legitimate regent, even if he is overreaching. Yeah. Yeah. Whereas, you know, uh, Costner's version of the Sheriff of Nottingham is basically, with the help of the Ku Klux Klan, staging a military coup <laughs> in this region, you know, with designs on 
presumably the the, thr- the throne in London. Yeah, it's like literally clan wizards. Yeah. <laughs> it, I feel bad that we've gone this far with nobody saying the famous Sheriff of Nottingham line. Would one of you like to say it about the spoon? Because it, <laughs> it'll hurt more, you twit. Anyway, I can't. I can't even do Alan Rickman. Um, I, I, I can't. I'm sorry. I wish I could. I, I think I would probably give an appendage to be able to do Alan Rickman, but I can't. I can't. Well, and and that's another post Star Wars <laughs> character. Well, no, no, no. I'm being serious here because you know R- Rickman's Sheriff of Nottingham. I mean, is killing off his own lieutenant. Oh yeah. As quickly as he's killing off Robin Hood's men. Yeah. Yeah, and how how does how does this guy stay in charge? It's another thing that uh-huh. doesn't make sense. Um, the the sheriff or Shire Reeve is a an administrative position that goes all the way back to Anglo-Saxon times. Um, mm-hmm. The Shire Reeve is appointed by the crown and is basically there to serve as a royal representative. Um, there are some kinds of cases that the Shire Reeve would be responsible for adjudicating. Um, he looks after tax collection, things like that. But it's not a royal title. It's it's not an it's not a title of nobility. He would not have mm-hmm. lands and estates. Um, he he's not an aristocrat. It's right. it's a royal appointment for someone who's basically, you know, a a glorified manager. Well, and this is why it's a coup in in Costner's version, right? Because he is trying forcibly to marry into the royal family. Well, but he's also presented as noble. Um, he has his own castle. You know, there's the whole mm-hmm. that that whole baby switch twist thing. You know, I I I don't think that movie knows what a sheriff is. <laughs> But really, they're alighting the Prince John character and the Sheriff of Nottingham character in a way that kind of makes a sad hash of of like the actual Middle Ages and Celts. Oh god! Oh, that's right. Yeah, they bring in the Celtic mercenaries, <laughs> which hired <laughs> <laughs> thugs. Brilliant. <laughs> I would have never thought. Like, man, he just he just thought of hired thugs. What? That movie makes a sad hash of almost everything it touches. Yeah. It really does. I'm a well, and I mean, they roll the guy of Gisborne plot into the sheriff of Nottingham too, because right. he is the one, not guy of Gisborne, who is the rival for Maid Marian. Yeah, every everything. It, it, it's like they're consolidating everything into Rickman, which Rickman can carry the weight, and you know, don't get me wrong, <laughs> um, but in ways that 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 don't make a lot of narrative sense within the tradition. I want to know where he got that stealth catapult that you can some, somehow push through dense forest un, uh, like completely <laughs> undetected. Anyway. Yeah. Well, we are rapidly running out of time here. <laughs> um, they have made several other Robin Hood movies and television shows since the Costner version. I haven't seen the Russell Crowe version because it looked like a massive bummer. I also oh, did it ever. <laughs> I haven't watched the BBC television series, which my understanding changes a lot as well. So I can't comment on that. But on our way out, and we'll do this quickly, I want to make a Robin Hood for 2017. What elements would you keep in? What tone would you take? And who would you cast? Mm. 
if I'm going to make a Robin Hood for 2017, I'm going to make it an animated film like the Disney one, first of all. That's uh, going to be lots of color. It's going to be lots of visual appeal. Uh, I'm not going to try to make it the dour military coup of Kevin Costner and certainly not whatever the heck the Russell Crowe version was trying to do visually. I also <laughs> haven't seen it. Let's um, not demythologize is what you're saying. Keep the Oh, heavens going. no. Yeah, yeah. Because that's what Robin Hood is. I mean, this is, at its root, a myth about someone who, like Grubbs was saying, shows you what aristocracy should be, mm-hmm. while Guy of Gisborne is showing you what aristocracy shouldn't be. This is someone who is waiting faithfully, and I'm, I'm, I'm sounding theological here, but it's hard not to, waiting faithfully for the true king while the false powers of the world are tyrannizing the people. Uh, you know, this is, this is something that deserves a really, really good cartoon, and so that's where I'm going to go with it. Friar Tuck's got to be in there uh, because he is a reminder that we get that sense of a true king who is coming to dispel the false powers uh, precisely from a, a Christian background. Uh, and as far as the bad guys go, I mean, I want to keep the, the full trio. Uh, I want the regent who is scheming to overreach uh, I want the foil to Robin Hood. Uh, honestly, I kind of like the gangster assassin version that David was talking about, <laughs> so we might go with that. Yeah. Uh, but we also need the the functionary, the one who has no real ambition because he has no real potential, but who still gains that sort of joy from trying to destroy the genuinely good character. So uh, that's and as far as Marion goes, let me get to Marion. Uh, honestly, that that's one of the things about the Costner version that I would want to keep. I would want her to be the one teaching Robin Hood to be Robin Hood. Hmm. So how about you, Grubbs? Cool. There are some elements that I think are interesting in revisiting it that they're not, they're not in the source material, but I think it would be kind of a fun way to um, spin it. Uh, I like the Norman Saxon thing, even if that's anachronistic. Uh, and, and at least in terms of the source material, um, that's that's something that that shows up later on. But uh, I, I like that idea. And when I was rewatching uh, rewatching the Errol Flynn one, um, I think it was the sheriff of Nottingham who used uh, used a term to describe Robin Hood as an outlaw. He called him that wolf's head. Uh, that is a very uh, very old term for an outlaw that goes all the way back to uh, Old English and the, the notion of, of of outlawry as uh, one of the you know uh, common punishments for 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 crime and outlaws as kind of uh, lone wolves uh, predators out at the uh, out at the corners of things. Anyway, I, I think it would be interesting to kind of focus on on those kinds of uh, things maybe anchor Robin Hood in, into sort of the outlaw tradition of uh, of more Germanic legend like stuff that you see in in Iceland um, fugitive criminals uh, but also I like the idea of Robin Hood as this um, uh, charismatic hero in his own right who seems to be attracting a following that looks less like feudalism and more like the heroic code uh, in something like Beowulf. Uh, 
so that maybe maybe he's just like a really really old fashioned guy who's who's running a kind of Saxon alternate um, alternate society in the woods that isn't that isn't operating by the feudal Norman logic. Um, just so everybody understands, David suggests making a Benedict option version of Robin Hood. <laughs> well, uh, let's call it the Beowulf option of Robin Hood. <laughs> I smell your next book, dude. <laughs> it would have to be my first book. I would, I would need a, I would need another book in order for it to be my next book. I, I don't, I don't have any specifics in my head. But if they were going to make another one, I would want it, as Nathan said, to be bright and sunny. And I would want them to do the sort of joy you get in scenes of the Errol Flynn version and the uh, the Disney version without any trace of the irony that I'm afraid they couldn't do it without these days. I'm not sure you could make the sort of Robin Hood I would want them to make because they would either be tempted to make it filthy or they would temp- be tempted to wink at the camera the whole time. Mm. and mm. And... And I, I, I think that's death to something like this. I think the, the these stories should be pure joy, and mm-hmm. uh, I'm not sure we can. I'm not sure we make movies like that. I mean, so maybe you would have to make it a, a cartoon because I think cartoons are pretty much the one place you can still do that. And even mm-hmm. there, uh, I think there's a lot of a lot of ironic winking. Mm-hmm. But we could do without you know men standing in semicircles laughing for 45 second stretches. Oh, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I, there's a sense in which the Errol Flynn version is a parody of itself, you know, like mm-hmm. it, it sets up its own parody as it goes through, but it's not ironic. You know, there's mm-hmm. no, I, I don't know. It's not a cynical movie. No, it's not. It it actually, in it enjoys what it is and it thinks that you mm-hmm. will too. And I just yeah. feel like we've been stuck in this endless loop in pop culture of taking these old stories and just crapping all over them and maybe it started with the kevin costner robin hood i don't know mm-hmm. uh, but but like these these stories that are supposed to be myth and supposed to be um bright and we we turn them into something dour and ugly and completely human mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I, I think about that terrible and there's another one there's another terrible looking king arthur movie that's a demythologization of the Arthur story, and who wants that? Mm-hmm. Yeah, who, who wants that Brad Pitt Troy? That's the Iliad <laughs> without gods. Yeah, what not if, me. What if you had a Robin Hood that had maybe kind of a a dire scenario, but you you cast as Robin Hood a big, laughing, larger than life personality who who seems to kind of elevate the tone around himself it's as if he is the myth kind of coming in uh, a remythologized yeah i'm, th- I'm th- I, yeah, I love that i'm thinking like a, like a cast. like a big laughing chris hemsworth <laughs> who you yeah who you, i guess he could do that who you kind of already see is kind of a norse god anyway my wife my wife said channing tatum but i don't i don't i channing tatum i think would be it would be ironic it would be winking mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, listeners, if you've got any ideas, you can send us an email at thechristianhumanist at gmail.com or visit our webpage, which is christianhumanist.org. David, what are we doing next week? Oh, man. I think we're going to talk about VBS or Vacation Bible School for those of you who were not raised in uh, American evangelicalism over the last, you know, 50 years. Good times. (laughs) 
Well, uh, until then, the Christian Humanist Podcast is a production of the Christian Humanist Radio Network. Our, our press liaison is Kristen Philippic. Our intern for a few more weeks is Amberly Copeland. For David Grubbs and Nathan Gilmore, this is Michael Farmer saying, let your sins be strong and let your faith be stronger.